As popular writer and advocate for the work of the so-called blue-collar workers, Mike Rowe, spelled R-O-W-E, has honed his craft for some 40 years and has been successful in the world of writing and entertainment reporting on rugged work done mostly by human hands during long days, many times in harsh conditions <clears throat> and sometimes with big machines. He is most recognized as a host of the TV series Dirty Jobs and a voiceover for the show Deadliest Catch, which chronicles the life of crab boat fishermen and at least one woman on the Bering Sea. I'm drawn to Rowe's work for two reasons. He highlights the work most people relegate to others, things which our parents or grandparents could easily do or easily imagine themselves doing because he's good at connecting the dots. His book, The Way I Heard It, a collection of essays initially published on Facebook, is written in the Paul Harvey storytelling style of, and now you know the rest of the story. These vignettes keep the listener in suspense while linking together information one never would have connected but for the storyteller's tale. Today, the story of Jesus' purpose and mission is coming together for his followers. In Luke's Gospel, we are only a few verses and a few stories past the Transfiguration. And Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. Now we are at a turning point. He's on the move. His intent is to go to the holy seed of God the Father, and while he is finishing his ministry to the people of Galilee, Jesus starts pulling together his teachings into a body of work and charting new patterns of behavior and an ethic of the new covenant based in love, the love of God and the love of neighbor. His time draws near when he is to be taken up, encompassing his death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father. He earnestly teaches discipleship while warning those who want to be his disciples that the road is difficult. He calls others who are willing but unwilling to put God first in their lives. Immediately on the way to Jerusalem, there's a potential unraveling of his work, as the Samaritans are a little bit unwelcoming of him. James and John, righteously defending Jesus and in recalling the works of the prophet Elijah, express a desire to rain fire down on them. Jesus, having none of this, will not return the absence of hospitality with violence. That is simply not the message of his coming sacrifice on the cross. He and James and John move on and, in the manner of past circumstances, shake the dirt from their sandals. Jesus' messengers were sent forward, preparing the way, doing the hard work of sharing the message of Jesus, but they were rejected. It is a discouraging tale and one we might hear more often than we would like. It is hard work done in love. I will follow you wherever you go, the person says to Jesus, and because we've experienced the events of Holy Week, perhaps we could draw a quick breath when we hear this. 
And of course, his followers aren't prepared for this week of events. Along with the 12 named men and some women we know, Mary of Magdala, Mary of Magdala being one, he has other unnamed followers. During his Galilean ministry, Jesus performed miracles and taught, which he continues until his ascension. But now he prepares his followers for what might be considered the cost of discipleship for those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He has already warned them of his coming suffering and death and has said, if you want to be my follower, you yourself must take up your cross daily. Jesus is forthright about the physical conditions of his discipleship. Foxes have dens, but I, the Messiah, sent by God to save creation, have no place, no place to lay my head. This situation, of course, is purposeful, not by circumstance. His decision to have few possessions, to rely on the goodwill of others, and his close relationships with people allow him to be free of the power of things or possessions that might control his decisions. He needs to be nimble on his path to the cross to reveal God's love to the world. It is an example of how to live without the compromise demanded by owning material things. To follow Jesus is to be like him. By following his good example, and detaching from material things. That is, to never cling to worldly goods, but rather to hold them loosely so as to be open to the needs of our world, never allowing them to be an impediment to following the will of God. We see this exemplified in the lives of saints, like St. Francis of Assisi and Julian of Norwich. The fact is, though, we are embodied creatures and need material goods to survive. Some people are extreme minimalists, living in hotels or on friends' couches with all of their material possessions carried in a backpack. If Jesus were living today, that might have been a choice of lifestyle for him. I don't know. And like his life 2,000 years ago and through the Christian age, it's been the way for very few people. Like the rich man who could not sell all his possessions and give his money to the poor, Jesus teaches us that the power of money and possession have on our lives keeps us from, living, from loving others and faithfully following Christ. Luke's Gospel challenges us a little bit further addressing family and social norms. Jesus offers a call to whom he encounters, Follow me, he calls to these disciples, hearkens them back to the call of Peter and James and John, only without the miracle of the great catch of fish. Just like them, people are asked to drop everything and follow Jesus. These people are like you and me, demonstrating fidelity to family and social norms. A proper burial for one and an honorable farewell to family members by another before leaving is certainly not too much to ask. This is puzzling, since they are marks of good, good behavior and respect. It would seem unusual for a teacher to require that of a follower. What does he mean? So in Jesus' response to a seemingly 
reasonable request or when the words of Jesus feel harsh, it's generally a clue that we're missing something important or we're not connecting the dots. Jesus, our teacher, connects us to the kingdom of God and is showing us a new order. When our loyalties of family structures, community, and traditions take precedence to being disciples of Christ, we are not in right relationship with God. We are God's, made in his image. He sent Jesus to show us what that means, that God is a loving Father, and that through discipleship in Christ and honoring God first, we possess a commitment to a deeper faith and a richer life in the Spirit. I encourage you in this coming week to think about what it means to you to be a committed disciple. What is Jesus asking of you when he says, follow me? That is, what is he asking you to not hesitate about or respond to in that little phrase, but first, Lord, I must do... Discipleship does not look backwards. It's a forward-looking journey and a story, if you like. We can connect the dots of experience. We could connect the study of scripture, all the opportunities presented to us in fellowship and worship to do the work of being a disciple fully in Christ, to continue the story of God's salvation. Most importantly, discipleship is about loving one another those who we agree with, and those we have differences with. We are to love each other as Christ loves you.